please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we conclude our mini-series on the topic of sex and the Christian. I pray that it has been helpful to you, and no matter what age or stage of life you find yourself in. If you have not been with us all five weeks, I do encourage you to go and to listen to those sermons that you might have missed Uh, By way of recap, uh, we began by thinking about uh, a a worldly view of sexuality compared to a biblical view of sexuality. Uh, We then uh, looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 to 20 uh, to uh, find in these texts uh, ammunition to arm us, to guard our hearts against sexual temptation. Uh, and then last week, we continued on in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, uh, thinking about what God has to say about sex and marriage. Uh, well, this morning, we uh, move to the next passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, in which Paul speaks particularly about sex and singleness. And so hear God's word. Paul writes, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Our Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold marvelous things in your scriptures. Lord, we pray that your spirit who inspired these words would grant now to us the illumination that we need to understand it. This is truth. It is truth for us today. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we might grow in grace, that we might grow in our knowledge of Christ, that we might grow in our knowledge of your will. We pray all this in his name. Amen. I think you would agree with me if you are a member of our congregation that one of the things that makes Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church unique, a part of our DNA, is that we have a strong emphasis here on families. We Uh, have a uh, strong children's ministry and youth ministry. In fact, many of you perhaps joined this church whenever you might have joined it because of those ministries. There is a a large number of young married couples here at Pear Orchard, and perhaps you came because of the fellowship that you knew that you would have and that your children would have as they grew up. Uh, The list of pregnancies and births is normally long, even as it has been uh, this year. At one point in the past, someone said to me that uh, Pear Orchard had the highest number of children per capita in the PCA. I have no idea if that uh, still holds true, uh, but I would imagine that uh, we are somewhere, you know, close to the top of that list. Uh, We are committed as a church to robust biblical marriage counseling, right? And we have had over the years uh, family retreats and marriage retreats, although it does seem like we're overdue for, for one of those, isn't it, John? It's time to have one again, all right? We pray, even as Ken has prayed this morning, regularly for marriages and for families. Um, but as is so often the case, every strength 
is also a weakness. And so one of our weaknesses here has been in our ministry to singles, whether college age or post-college, young professionals or to older singles. At times, it hasn't been for a lack of trying. When I first arrived here in 2014, soon after I got here, one of our interns began to lead a young singles Bible study. Well, unfortunately, the the number of young singles was so small that they coupled off and got engaged and married. And so the young singles Bible study became a young marriage Bible study. And that's so often has been perhaps the way it is here at Fair Orchard. Now we laugh, but, but we have to admit, don't we, uh, that those who are not married or you know, not even to mention those who are married but have no children, right, oftentimes perhaps can unwittingly, unintentionally, uh, be made to feel less ministered to here, uh, less valued perhaps, less spiritual, as if you're second-class citizens because you're not married or you don't have kids. Now, we don't have as many younger singles as a church our size, uh, certainly not as many male singles as female singles of any age. And so sometimes it, it seems that fellowship with people who can understand our particular struggle in our particular age or stage of life, the specific trials and, and joys uh, of similar circumstances, that can be lacking for those who are single. Now, of course, we don't want to, to be a church that, that has you know, children's church and you children go, you go over there and worship or youth church, you go over there and worship and, or, 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 or singles. Oh yeah, singles ministry, you're single, go over there. We, we don't, when you, maybe when you get married, you can come and hang out with the rest of us. Of course, we don't want to be like that. But my sense is, as much as we don't want it to be the way it often is, sometimes it is difficult here at Pear Orchard to be unmarried. Maybe I'm completely off base and wrong. You can correct me afterward if so. Um, And yet, as we look around our society, uh, there is an increasing number of those who have never been married, those who are divorced, single again, uh, those who are widowed. How will we minister to this part of the population? It's important that we as a church do not ignore our brothers and sisters who are unmarried. And so in our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 7, 7 to 9, as well as other parts of this chapter, as we'll see here in a moment, Paul is speaking specifically to the unmarried, even as we saw him last week speak specifically to the married Now, as we'll see, in some ways, this text is unique to the particular time and place to which Paul was writing, yet there are principles in these verses and this whole chapter that are always applicable to those who are currently unmarried. And just like I told the singles last week to to pay attention as we heard what Paul said about sex and marriage, so I would say to you who are married this week. Pay attention to what Paul has to say about singleness. Again, not just so that you can know how to pray for your brothers and sisters who are not married, but also because far more suddenly than becoming married, each and every one of us who is married now can become single like that. A spouse could drop dead today and instantly you would be a widow or a widower. Your spouse, without you even perhaps knowing it, could leave you unexpectedly. And you would be single. And so we who are married need to pay attention to what Paul 
has to say in this passage. Now, this is a hard chapter in many ways. I don't feel like I understand it as well as I would like, uh, but I want you to see three things from the text that we've read and other passages in it. First, I want you to see the single's benefit. Secondly, the single's burden. And thirdly, the single's beloved. First, the single's benefit. In verse 7, Paul, having just spoken about the sexual responsibility that spouses have toward one another, he declares that he wishes that all Christians were as he is. Now, as we'll see in a moment, Paul's not referring to his state of singleness per se, but to this gift that God had given him and to others like him, a gift to be free from the desire or the need of sexual fulfillment, a gift that enables them to live without marriage in the first place. But though Paul recognizes that not everyone who is unmarried has this gift of celibacy, and he recognizes, of course, that marriage is a gift from God as well, a gift to many, as he says there in verse 7. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Some, the gift of celibacy, able to remain single without uh, sexual uh, fulfillment, and others, the gift of marriage. But Paul here in verse 8 is saying to us his opinion, that it is good, he writes, for the unmarried, the widows, to remain single as he is. You notice at the end of the chapter, he ends with a similar note, verses 39 and 40. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Right? You must marry another believer. But then he says in verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God, as Paul gives his opinion, his judgment. Not a command from the Lord, not a thus saith the Lord, but Paul's sanctified opinion. Now, why does Paul think that remaining single is good? Why does Paul think that uh, the single widow is happier unmarried than married? How are we to understand Paul's words here, especially in light of what he tells us about marriage elsewhere and his exalted view of marriage? Ephesians 5, for instance, or what he tells us in 1 Timothy 5, where he commands younger widows to get married, to bear children, to manage their own households. So how do we jive what Paul is saying here with other parts of scripture? Well, we gain insight into Paul's thinking as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 27. Look at those verses with me. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife that is perhaps already married, but, but likely engaged to be married? Do, do not Set to see to be free. Do not desire to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, notice a couple things about this text. Notice that, that Paul's comments are in light of what he calls this present distress. Now, it's not exactly clear to what he is referring. Uh, the word can mean pressure or trouble or hardship. 
Uh, Many commentaries say that Paul uh, is possibly referring to the the famine that took place during the reign of of the Roman emperor Claudius, perhaps a period of persecution. Uh, It's not clear, but what is clear is that we need to read Paul's words in this chapter as he gives us his opinion and his judgment. Uh, We need to read it in this context that there was something going on in in Corinth in that day and age uh, that led Paul to give this opinion. Uh, But notice that what he goes on to write in this chapter about singleness and marriage more broadly has application for us even today, though we do not live in Corinth in the first century. Notice in verse 28 that Paul goes on to say that marrying is not a sin. But he does say this, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now here's where we get closer to this question of why does Paul say that it is good to remain unmarried? Why does Paul say uh, that the widow who remains unmarried is happier if she remains unmarried? Why does Paul see singleness as a good thing? Well, he's telling us that the single's benefit is this. Singleness spares a man or a woman from troubles and concerns that are part and parcel of marriage life. And on the flip side, Remaining unmarried frees you to serve the Lord without divided interest. Look at verses 32 and following. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties or from concern. The unmarried man is is anxious, is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That is his sole focus. The married man is anxious, concerned about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious, concerned about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious, concerned about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So do you hear what Paul is saying? If you are single, your interests are not divided. No, of course, we have to be careful. It's not that the married person is less devoted to the Lord as the single person. No, indeed, seeking to please your spouse is a way that you please the Lord. But there is a division, as it were. There is the unmarried man, the unmarried woman, does not have the same responsibilities to wife and to children, and therefore has more time to devote solely to the Lord's service without distraction. That's Paul's point. There's the benefit of singleness. Not only that you are spared worldly troubles that come along with marriage, but that you are free, free from distraction to serve the Lord with all of your might, all your time, all your energy, all your resources. And if you're single this morning, I hope that you know something of what Paul speaks. You don't have the same struggles that your married friends have. You are able to use more of your resources for the Lord, to serve him, to serve his people, to serve the lost. Marriage is good, the Bible teaches us, clearly. It's not a sin, it's not wrong to long to be married if you are single. But but we must see that singleness is good also. It is not somehow a second-class state to live the Christian life. No, in some situations, as Paul will tell us here, it's even better than marriage. Now, 
Do you believe this? Do you see this? Do you recognize that there are costs to be born in marriage that the single person does not have to pay? Uh, there are benefits to being single that the, the married person does not get to enjoy. And so I would say to you who are single this morning, redeem the time. Leverage your singleness for the glory of God. Use it for his purposes. Because once you are married, if you become married, you will not have the same time. You will not have the same freedom from concern that you have now to focus upon the Lord and upon his work. Perhaps for you it is more time to study God's word and to read books or to write. I think of a man like John Stott who was single all his life as a pastor. All that he wrote, all that he edited, all the, 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 the series of commentaries that the Lord enabled him to, to produce for the good of the church. He could not have done that likely if he were married. But in God's providence, he was single, and, and therefore he was able to be so prolific as an author. Perhaps for you it is the opportunity to, to go on a prolonged mission trip, to take time out of your schedule, or in today's age, right, to, to work virtually, remotely, wherever it might be, to serve the Lord wherever he calls you. Maybe it's the ability to give even more generously than you could if you were married and had responsibilities for a spouse or for children. Maybe it's time to volunteer ministry here in the church. Maybe it's prayer. You remember Anna in the Gospel of Luke and her incessant praying. Paul refers to the same thing in 1 Timothy 5 when he speaks of older widows who continue in prayer night and day. The point is this. If you are single right now, if you are unmarried, even if you long to be married, do you see your singleness as a calling, as an opportunity, as, an, as a chance to do ministry that once you are married, you will not have those chances and opportunities again? Ask the Lord to show you how, Lord, do you want to use my unmarried state, my singleness, for your glory and for the good of your church and for the good of the lost? Because there is a benefit to being single. But secondly, we have to recognize that though singleness is a benefit, it is a blessing, it is good, it can also be a burden. It can be a trial. Now, if we had time, we could unpack all sorts of aspects uh, to this burden of singleness. Uh, there can at times be uh, a deep loneliness, a deep longing for intimate companionship that you see your friends who are married have and enjoying. Uh, especially if you live by yourself, you can feel this loneliness very keenly in the evening time when you come home from work and there's no one there to welcome you. There's no one there as you go to bed. All of us have been single at some point in our life. All of us have, have experienced these feelings, haven't we? Now related to this, there is often a concern on the part of the unmarried as to what the future will look like. The idea of being lonely, being alone at the end of life, especially if you've never been married, never have had children, there is a fear of who will care for me when I'm not able to care for myself? Who will take care of me and provide for me when I cannot provide for myself? 
Will I have to spend these last years of my life all by myself, all alone? Will I be remembered? Will there be any friendship, any fellowship? And, and as we think about these concerns of relationship, don't we see how vital the church is? Not only for the sake of giving friendships and relationships to all of our members, but also as we see throughout the scriptures of the New Testament in particular, but even the Old Testament, how important it is for the church to care for her widows, particularly those who are widows indeed, who have no other family to care for them. Again, go read 1 Timothy 5 for more on this. But there are also spiritual, moral burdens that the single bears. We could speak of discontentment, the struggle, a fear struggle sometimes, thinking that life would be so much better if only God would give me marriage. And so with that, there comes this idolizing of marriage, making in our minds marriage to be a God. Right? That if we could only get marriage, it would satisfy our deepest needs. It would give us true significance and standing. It would give us purpose if only we could be married. How easy it is to make an idol of marriage when you're single and, of course, even when you are married. Those valid concerns about relationships and about the future can easily turn into sinful fears and anxieties. All of these and so much more is a part of the burden that our single brothers and sisters bear day by day. But in this chapter, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is particularly concerned about another aspect of the burden of being single, namely the sexual burden. You see it there in verse 9. He writes, But if they cannot exercise self-control, or better perhaps translated, if they do not exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Sometimes we think that the gift of singleness is, is something that, that everyone who is single has. Oh, you have the gift of singleness. Well, certainly, if you are currently single, you have the calling to singleness at this particular moment. But not everyone who is single, not everyone who is unmarried, has the gift that Paul speaks of here, a gift of sexual self-control that would allow you to remain unmarried without falling into grievous sin against the Lord. And for those who are struggling and failing in regard to sexual immorality. Paul says the solution is for you to get married. That is his command. They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with sexual passion. Now, again, we have to remember the situation in Corinth. Paul is speaking to a church where people were saying that marriage was, was, was bad and unnecessary, that sex and marriage was bad and unnecessary, that divorce was okay, as he's going to address in the next passage. So we understand that there's a, a local situatedness to what Paul's saying here, but he is still giving a command, which our Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, uh, one of the sins of the seventh commandment is this beautiful language of the undue delay of marriage. Sometimes undue delay of marriage can happen during engagement, right? a couple who is engaged too long and falls into sexual immorality. Uh, but sometimes it can happen where those who are single does, refuse to, to get married. But what about the single who says, Paul, I hear what you're saying. They should marry. But Paul, that's exactly what I want. And I can't find a spouse. I can't find someone to marry. What do we say to you? Well, Paul would say, look, as you await 
the Lord and his providence to bring you someone to marry, yes, it is true. You will have a fight, a fight against sexual passions. You'll be tempted by a sexual morality, by pornography and self-pleasure, by fantasizing over books you read and, and things that you see. And in some ways, for you, single man or woman, this fight, this struggle will be a unique fight. Uh, it's a fight and a struggle that, that married couples, in a sense, in some ways, do not have because they are able to fulfill their sexual desires in marriage. Now, I say in some ways because obviously, obviously there are affairs. There is adultery. Uh, it's very possible to sleep with your spouse and to enjoy watching pornography or sleeping with people who are not your spouse. We understand that. But if you are single and you do not have this gift of celibacy of which Paul speaks, then the burden that you bear is a, a tremendous one. You must fight and be on guard in special measure, Paul is saying, against sexual sin, whether you're in high school or college, whether you're right out of college, whether you're still single later in life or single again by divorce or by death, perhaps even widowed later in life. You've enjoyed sexual intimacy all your life and all of a sudden it is taken away from you like that. And Paul is saying and alluding here in this text that sexual temptation will be fierce and we must pray for self-control. Now let me just say a brief word here, kind of a digression but not really one about pornography. Uh, over the last five weeks, I haven't spoken to it uh, very directly, but it, it does bear mention at this point as we think about this burden of sexual temptation that the single bears in a unique way. Let me give you a few observations, uh, certainly not comprehensive in any way, uh, but, but perhaps things that you don't think about because maybe you grew up uh, many decades ago, and, and pornography today is very different than pornography used to be. You see, today, with the advent of the internet, a pornography is not really about still images any longer on, in a magazine or even on a screen. Yes, that's there and that's tempting, but pornography today, the pornography that, that our young people, and not just young people, but everyone in our culture struggles with, is, it's, it's film, it's, it's images that are, that are moving, that are living, it's videos. And so therefore, because of this, these videos are so much more affecting, so much more gripping and addictive. Watching people engage in sexual acts are far more damaging to body and soul and to relationships present and future. Uh, far more of a gateway drug, as it were, into homosexuality and bisexuality and polyamory and bestiality and sadism, all these things that, that follow in a culture that has given up on the word of God as a standard morality. So we have to realize that about pornography today. But second, because of, of its being on the internet and, and being images, or not just images, but videos, pornography today is potentially everywhere. Right? It's in your social media feeds. It's, it's on Netflix. It's on the TV. It's, it's on the websites you watch. It's so much easier to gain access to it over the last 20 years than it was before 25 years ago or so when you had to sneak a peek at your grandfather's Playboys, or you had to go to the back you know, the, of the bookstore and, and kind of sneak around to the magazine racks. It's on your phone. It's in the privacy of your own home. But third, pornography today increasingly is something that not just men struggle with, 
but women struggle with. I don't know the stats, but you talk to our youth workers and they will tell you that younger girls are struggling with watching pornography more and more, just as it used to be the boys. But we ought not to think of like, oh, pornography, that's a male thing. No, it, it's a temptation for men and for women, if it ever really was just a male thing. And so women, I would say to you what we often do say to men and to boys, if you are watching pornography, you are committing a grievous sin and if you are entrapped in this sin, pray and plead with God to give you help, the help of the Holy Spirit. It is vital that you put this sin to death, that you cut off every cord, every source that tempts you, that you seek the help of God's people against this sin. Because you see, pornography is heinous. It is deathly. And the last thing I would say about pornography is that it is, a, it is never a private sin. It is never a private sin. Yes, you might be watching privately in your bedroom, but you are watching in the presence of God, the holy God. You are participating in the sexual sin of the people whom you are watching on the screen. Even soft porn and rated R movies or, or even commercials, it feels like these days. It's abhorrent to Christ. Think about this. Would you ever go next door, knock on the door of your neighbor and ask them if, if you could watch them having sex. Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that. And yet why do we feel, even as a Christian culture at times, that it's okay to, to watch it on the big screen or to watch it on the TV or on the phone? Carl Truman in his book, The Making of the Modern Self, quotes from a Roman, the Roman Catholic Catechism. Obviously we disagree with, with Rome on many things, but, but I thought that this definition of pornography got at this point that, that pornography is never private. Listen to what they write. Pornography consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It offends against chastity, they write, because it perverts the conjugal act, the intimate giving of spouses to each other. It does grave injury to the dignity of its participants, actors, vendors, the public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others, it immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. It is a grave offense. Now, I've spoken of pornography here because as we think about the burden of the single, the sexual burden of the single, again, if you are married, as Paul has commanded you in the first part of chapter 7, you have the privilege and the responsibility of engaging, engaging sexually with your spouse. But if you're not married, you don't have that privilege. You don't have that responsibility. It's forbidden to you. And therefore, that forbidden fruit becomes all the more desirable, perhaps. And pornography is one of the chief ways that those who are single in our culture sin against the Lord sexually. And so as I began five weeks ago, I'll, I'll end with this verse, Ephesians 5, verse 3. Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Do we believe that? Do we, as God's people, are we committed to maintaining sexual purity? If this is your burden as a single man or woman, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will uphold you. He will bear you up. He will bear your burden. 
Bear one another's burdens, Paul says in Galatians 6. Seek the strength of the Lord and the strength of brothers and sisters in Christ to help you bear it with all your might. That brings us to the last point briefly. We've seen the singles benefit, the singles burden, and now I want you to see the singles beloved. You see, as you wrestle with these benefits and burdens, whether you long to be married or do indeed have the gift of, that the Apostle Paul had, there's no more important thing for you than to remember what Isaiah 54 verse 5 tells us, that your maker, your redeemer is your husband. And what this means is that you as a single man, a single woman, you are in no way incomplete. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, that marriage is ultimately not about sex. It's not about personal fulfillment. It's not about raising up another generation. First and foremost, it is about showing forth the glories of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. At its heart, it is about the relationship that all of us as Christians have with Jesus, which means that though the marriage bed is a glorious picture of our union with Christ, every Christian whether single or married, has the reality of, of that which sex points. If you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're not married, everything that the sexual union points to, you have in full. If you've never had sex, if you will never have sex because God and his providence will have you single all your days, don't you see that you have the deeper intimacy to which sexual intimacy points? Let us never forget that in the new earth, there will be no marriage. And by implication, no more sex. But we will have pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God our Father. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31. Paul says, For the present form of this world is passing away. And if you go back and read the verses right before that, you will see that what he is saying is no matter what our calling is, no matter what in his providence he has given to us, we must hold this world and its joys and pleasures loosely. We must recognize that even the best marriage cannot satisfy the deepest yearnings of our soul. And if you have not figured that out yet in your own marriage, you will. Marriage is not God. It is a gift of God. And so if you are single this day, rest your soul, rejoice in your union with Jesus Christ, your marriage to Christ, so that you might not have an overly high view of marriage or an overly low view of marriage. Enjoy the benefits of singleness. Ask the Lord to show you how you can use your singleness for his glory. Know that God is for you, that he is with you, that he is in you. Wait on him. And as you wait for your, the longing of your heart to, to be married, know that God is working his purposes out. And therefore you can trust him. You can serve him without joy or without bitterness, but with joy. You can serve him without envy, without comparison, but with a sacrificial heart. Never forget that Jesus has died to make you his glorious bride. And the you there is Certainly everyone who's single, but every single one of us, single or married, every day, let us remember that we are the beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ. The present form of this world is passing away, but Jesus' love for us 
will abide forever. And so every other, every other love is demoted in our heart, in our eyes, so we might glorify him in body and in soul. The only way to rightly appropriate the benefits of singleness, the only way to bear the burden of singleness is to see the beloved of the single, Jesus Christ, in all of his beauty and all of his glory. May he do that for each and every one of you who are unmarried this day. And as I said earlier, who knows if those who are married become unmarried this week while I'm on sabbatical, a year from now. We have no idea. God knows. And when that day might possibly come, will you remember this sermon? As I was writing this sermon, I thought this is a sermon that I wish I would have heard when I was single. I wish I would have been able to tell myself the things that I'm seeing in God's word now because I needed that as a single man before marriage. I hope you do too. And I hope that God's word throughout these last five weeks has been food for your soul, that it would rejuvenate your marriage if you're married, that it would give you a new sense of your calling as a single man or woman, and that in all things you would stand forth as light shining in a world, a dark world, a dead world, that rejects the authority of Scripture, the authority of God, that you would go forth with confidence, with boldness, in holiness and in purity, resting in the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ and the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you that you have loved us. You've given us your word of how we need it. Lord, I pray that the words that we have seen from the Apostle Paul today, that they would equip us. Lord, that they would help us if we are single, if we are unmarried. Father, would you grant grace to these brothers and sisters. Lord, help us as a church to more helpfully serve them. Lord, help us to remember every one of our members. Father, we ask that you would glorify your name through us, whether married or unmarried. And Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit to help us to put sin to death, to fight against particularly this scourge of pornography in our culture. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to make us more and more a people zealous for good deeds? Jesus, you have died for us, that we might be your people, a people for your own possession, a people devoted to holiness. So Lord, make it so we pray, not because we are good or worthy of it, because we are yours. You are our beloved and we are your bridegroom. And Lord, help us, we pray, to walk in that love day by day. In your name we ask it. Amen.